Right, so please try and keep your Bibles and your phones open at today's passage, Leviticus 26. It's, it's a long and, and quite an intense one, but uh, it's the Word of God, and, and I'm certain we can be edified by it. But before we dive into the text, I think it might be helpful if we took a few minutes to remember the events that, that actually occurred in, in Genesis 1 through to chapter 3. And there's, there's no need to turn there, um, but I'll give us a quick run-through just to help us set the foundation of what we are about to dive into. So, as you remember, Genesis starts with those famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we move through Genesis 1, we see that God begins to speak his world into existence. He creates the stars in the sky, the sun and the moon, and he creates the land and the seas, the birds, the animals of the land. And then he creates us, humanity. He creates us in his image, male and female. He created them. Throughout this chapter, we see that everything was good, that everything God created was good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see in more detail the events that took place during the creation of the first human being. We see that Adam was created from dust, and, and God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden and said, take care of my creation. Work the lands, nurture the lands, eat from any tree you'd like, all of it is good for you, apart from one. And that was, as you surely remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God commanded Adam not to eat from this tree or he will surely die. And after this, Eve was created from Adam's rib and thus a suitable helper for Adam was made. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And then we get to chapter 3, where Eve is tempted by the serpent to eat from the tree that God commanded them not to, and she eats from it. She gives it to her husband, and, and Adam eats from it also. And from that moment onwards, creation is cursed. The pain of childbearing is increased. Work becomes painful and difficult. The ground, instead of being fruitful, produces thorns and thistles. Death became inevitable, both physical death and spiritual death. Sin enters the world. From that moment, humanity was separated from the living God. And friends, that is the world that we currently live in. And I'm sure many women here will remember the pains of childbearing. I'm sure many of us here know what it feels like to work hard but not receive the fruit of your labor. And even in its original application, some of you might know first, with first-hand experience what it feels like to spend hours and days working in your garden or farm only for a disease or, or severe weather conditions to wipe out your crops. See, we live in a world saturated with death. And I, I personally don't think there is a more trying time for a Christian than, than when we experience 
the death of someone we love, whether that's physical or spiritual. The world is broken. So from that perspective, look down with me at Leviticus 26. I read from verse 3. God says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. See, I think there's no doubt the first readers of this text would have seen a strong contrast between the world that they're living in and the promise that God has made in these verses. In our Western culture, especially in the majority of the UK, bad weather actually is a minor convenience, inconvenience. It might just be a talking point to break the silence between you or a colleague or or a friend. And similarly, good weather can often be seen as just a minor convenience. You might decide to go for a walk at the Peak District that day or, or have lunch um, outdoors instead of indoors. However, for the people of ancient Israel, rain at the right time was a matter of life and death. See, intercontinental trade, though it existed at the time, was a rarity in this part of the Middle East. Because they relied heavily on their own resources, it meant that they were susceptible to starvation. Should drought come or rainfall at the wrong time, it was something that was just on the horizon. But if rain were to fall at the right time, it would guarantee that there would be enough food to sustain God's people for the year ahead. So there would be no worry of starvation, and at least for the next year. However, what God promises to Israel is much more than sustainability. See, instead of the ground yielding thorns and thistles, the ground will yield its crops in abundance. Verse 5 says you will eat all the food you want. Unlike, we, unlike what we saw in Genesis 1, there are, there are no restrictions. And unlike in Genesis 3, the ground will yield its crops and the trees its fruit. No thorns, no thistles. But there's a, there's a caveat. And uh, these rewards will only be given to God's people if they follow his decrees and are careful to obey his commands. The promises made to, uh, the promises made to the physical people of Israel don't always apply to God's people as a whole. Um, however, it's worth mentioning that, that uh, our saviour, Jesus Christ, made a similar promise to his people. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? 
for the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Let's remember that we have a father who is eager to provide for his people. Although it's clear from Jesus' words and Leviticus 26 that the emphasis isn't actually on material things, but rather it's on obedience. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There are at least three rewards for obedience mentioned in the first part of today's passage. And the first we've, we've looked at already, the provision of all the food the people of Israel would both want and need. The second part, the second reward of obedience is the gift of protection. So if you take a look down at verse 6, he says, I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. So for people of Israel, food and resources without protection was pointless. As neighboring leaders sought to occupy the land of God's people, losing food and resources was always inevitable. So as well as provision, God has promised that if they obey him, he will protect them from all outside harm. I'm sure that you remember the story of Cain and Abel. This event that occurred shortly after the fall of mankind gives us a picture of the broken relationships um, among human beings. Violence, anger, and war, these are all things that we have come to expect in the world that we live in. On the other hand, it's, it's actually, it's very likely that the majority of us in this room have never seen war face to face. It's likely that the majority of Christians on this side of the world do not know what it feels like to fear for our life and to call on God for physical protection. It's a bit different for the early church. Fearing for their life was a daily occurrence. However, actually even today in many areas of the world, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, many areas in Africa, Christians are fearing for their lives but are trusting in God for their protection. The writer of Hebrews, when writing to the early church who were threatened with death or imprisonment, quoted Psalm 118 to bring them some comfort. He says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? Now, lastly, but not least, the Lord promises to be 
with his people. He promises his presence. Leviticus 26, verse 11 says, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So, yes, we know that the fall of mankind caused conflict and animosity between man and man. Uh, We saw that in the life of Cain and Abel, and we, we see that in the world we're in today. But the fall of mankind caused a much greater separation. When sin entered the world, a great cavity was formed between man and the creator of the universe. The great sin of humankind and the great holiness of God cannot dwell in the presence of each other. Verse 11, in a way, summarizes the whole book of Leviticus. It's asking that big question, how can sinful man dwell in the presence of a holy God? How can humanity living in a sinful world, in a sinful body, dwell in the presence of a powerful and holy God? Well, the answer is quite simple. Follow his decrees and obey his commands. Right? I mean, it it creates a big issue. Because every human in this world has failed to obey God. And if this was the end of the story, every one of us here will never taste the provision of God. Every one of us here will never know the perfection of God. Every person in this room will never know what it means or how it feels to dwell in the presence of a living and holy God. But thanks be to God. It's not, it's not the end of the story. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many were made righteous. The only reason we have the privilege of tasting the provision of God, of knowing the protection of God and dwelling in the presence of God is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, on the cross of Christ, our disobedience and our sin was imputed onto Christ. And Christ's obedience, Christ's righteousness was imputed onto us. So now we can stand before God despite what we've done, knowing that we do not stand in our name, but in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. As that wonderful hymn goes, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We are children 
of a father who promises to provide for all our needs and more. We're children of a father who offers the protection, all the protection we could ever need. And we're children of a father who promises to place his dwelling place among us. And because of Jesus Christ, all God's promises are yes and amen. You look at the, um, the second part of this passage, you'll see that title, Punishment for, obe- for Disobedience. And what I find particularly convicting is how disobedience is broken down in the first couple of verses. Let's take a look at verse 14 and 15. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands. First of all, that that use of the word listen is quite intentional because how can we walk in obedience to God without knowing his word? How do we walk in obedience to God without listening to his commands? I've heard um, many people argue, and I'm not quite sure how it's measured, but I've, I've heard many people argue that Biblical literacy is currently at an all-time low. And despite living in a society in which the word of God is more accessible than it's ever been, many fail time and time again to be regular hearers of the word. See, when we fail to listen to God's command and when we fail to spend time in God's word, we inevitably end up walking in disobedience to him. Now, another description we see here is to abhor God's law. And this is quite different because it's not so much what we do, but it's actually how we feel about God's law. You might remember David in the psalm repeats a number of times that he loves and treasures the laws of God. And it's unfortunate that today we see many who have a passionate hatred for God's law. You don't just see people living in disobedience, but actually pushing the idea that God's law is somehow unloving or oppressive. God's plan for marriage is being hated. God's plan for sexuality is being hated. Should we argue the preservation of human life in a womb will be hated? Should we argue that we're not to be lovers of money nor glorify material things will be hated? as disobedience runs in the very veins of our society and and as it did in ancient Israel as well. At first glance, when we take a look at this half of the chapter, we all see that it's considerably longer than the previous section. And I'm sure that as you were listening and hopefully following along um, with the reading earlier, you, you might have had some troubling thoughts going through your mind. And in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, humanity was cursed. However, here we have a much more vivid depiction of the consequences of disobedience. So instead of rain at the right time, God promises them drought. Instead of protection, 
God promises that their enemies will prevail over them. Verse 21 says, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. Instead of provision and abundance, we get the end of verse 26. It says, you will eat, but you will not be satisfied. I think verse 29 and 30 are particularly shocking. He says, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. You see, what's really shocking about these verses, that it doesn't just show us what what God will do to the people of Israel, but they actually show us what God did to the people of Israel. This section of scripture is not just promises, but it's actually prophecies. Every promise that God made to his people came to pass at some point in the history of Israel. The, The original readers would have heard this as a warning of what was to come, Yet if some of you know your Old Testament, you'd know that the people of Israel did not heed God's warning. They disobeyed God time and time again. And everything that we read here, it came to pass. What we see in this section of today's passage should, at the very least, bring a shiver down our spine. I think an important takeaway is that God takes sin seriously. That disobedience will not go unpunished. However, there's a, there's a line that's repeated throughout this text. And I think it speaks to the nature of of the God that we serve. Verse 18 says, if after all this, you will not listen to me. Verse 21, if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me. Verse 23, if in spite of all these things, you do not accept my correction. Verse 27, if in spite of this, you still do not listen to me. See, I hope you can see the patience of the God that we serve. I hope you can see the merciful nature of the God that we serve. Rich in love, slow to anger. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, when God told Adam that if he eats from the tree, he will surely die. You might remember that Adam didn't die straight away. In fact, God slaughtered an animal, clothed Adam and Eve in their nakedness, taking away their shame. Our God is a merciful God. See, yes, we must see the seriousness of our sin, but not, not so we can run away from God, but so that we, could, so that we should come to him in confession and repentance so that we might be cleansed from all guilt and shame. 
Look down and follow along with me from verse 14. God says, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. Despite the people of Israel disobeying God, he has promised to keep the covenant that he made with them. Verse 44 says, verse 44 says, in spite of their disobedience, he will not abhor them. As followers in Christ, we should no doubt be walking in obedience to God and all his commands. Our goal in our lives should be to bring glory to our creator. However, until the day we receive our glorified bodies, there will be times when we sin. There will be days when we fail. There will be be days when we, we fail through our actions to be faithful in our covenant with God. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny who he is. As God was patient and merciful with Israel, so is he with us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I'll finish with a quote from from John Calvin who says, since it is the Lord who forgives, forgets, and wipes away sins, let us confess them to him in order to obtain grace and pardon. He is the physician. Let us then show him our wounds. He is the one who has been offended and injured. So let us then ask him for mercy and peace. He is the one who knows hearts and sees every thought. Let us then open our hearts to him. He is the one who calls sinners. Let us turn back to him. Thus David declares, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin.